Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of The Informed Catholic. My name is Ned Jabbar. This is going to be episode 215 of The Informed Catholic, episode 215. So before we begin, please subscribe and share to my podcast if you like what I do and you think I'm doing a great job. It would be a great help. Uh, the more numbers, uh, the more people subscribe. The more the podcast gets distributed even more, it would let Anchor, Spotify, and all the other podcast platforms know that you like this podcast, and it will encourage me to keep doing it. So now that that's out of the way, we're going to do the readings for the um, second Saturday of Advent, the second Saturday of Advent. So let's begin with our Advent prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Be comforted, be comforted, my people. Your salvation comes quickly. Why with grief are you consumed? For sorrow has stricken you. I will save you. Fear not, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer. Drop dew, you heavens from above, and let the clouds rain the just one. O God, who gladdens us by the annual expectation of our redemption, grant that we, who now receive with joy your only begotten Son, our Redeemer, may behold him without fear when he comes as our judge, even the same Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And I like to say this novena to Our Lady of Lourdes. O ever immaculate virgin, mother of mercy, health of the sick, refuge of sinners, comforter of the afflicted, you know my wants, my troubles, my sufferings. Cast upon me a look of mercy by appearing in the grotto of lords. You were pleased to make it a privileged sanctuary where you dispense your favors and where many sufferers have obtained the cures of their infirmities, both spiritual and corporal. I come there... Therefore, with the most unbounded confidence to implore your maternal intercession, obtain, O loving Mother, the granting of my request through gratitude for favors. I will endeavor to imitate your virtues, that I may one day share your glory. Amen. And now the novena to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. O most blessed Mother, heart of love, heart of mercy, ever-listening, caring, consoling hear our prayer as your children we implore your intercession with jesus your son receive with understanding and compassion the petitions we place before you today especially and here we make our private uh intentions so for a moment Okay, we can comfort, we are comforted in knowing your heart, knowing your heart is ever open to those who ask for your prayer. We trust to your gentle care and intercession, those whom we love and who are sick or lonely or hurting. Help, help all of us, Holy Mother, to bear our burdens in this life until we may share eternal life and peace with God forever. Amen. O Mary, conceive without sin. Pray for us who have recourse to thee. O Mary, concede without sin. Pray for us who have recourse to thee. O Mary, concede without sin. Pray for us who have recourse to thee. 
Immaculate Mary, pray for us. Immaculate Mary, pray for us. Immaculate Mary, pray for us. St. Bernadette, pray for us. All right. Now we'll begin our uh, readings for the uh, second Saturday of Advent. Okay, so now we are in the second week of Advent. This is going to be Saturday. All right, this is the, the second Saturday of Advent, and I'm going to read the uh, entrance, uh, actually, yeah, entrance antiphon, and it's from Psalm 80. And I'm going to read it three times. So this, we're going to try to do the Lacido Divina, which is like to meditate. Entrance antiphon, Psalm 80. Come and show us your face, O Lord, who are seated upon the cherubim, and we will be saved. Once more. Come and show us your face, O Lord, who are seated upon the cherubim, and we will be saved. Come and show us your face, O Lord, who are seated upon the cherubim, and we will be saved. The collect prayer, I'm going to read it only once. May the splendor of your glory dawn in our hearts. We pray, Almighty God, that all shadow of the night may be scattered, and we, we may be shown to be children of light by the advent of your only begotten Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. And here's a little, foot, uh, little uh, note here about what we're reading today. Today's passage from Sirach speaks of Elijah bringing about a reconciliation in families in the gospel, Jesus states that John the Baptist is, in a sense, Elijah returned. Is, recon is reconciliation needed in my heart, home, workplace, or community? If so, how can I help it come about? I'm not crazy about those footnotes, but hey. All right, so it's Sirach chapter 48, starting from verse 1 to 4 and 9 to 11. Elijah was ever involved in a whirlwind. A reading from the Holy Book of Sirach. In those days, like a fire, there appeared the prophet Elijah, whose words were as a flaming furnace. Their staff of bread he shattered. In his zeal he reduced them to straits. By the Lord's word he shut up the heavens, and three times brought down fire. How awesome are you, Elijah, in your wondrous deeds, whose glory is equal to yours. You were taken aloft in a whirlwind of fire, in a chariot with, a, with fiery horses. You were destined, it is written, in time to come to put an end to wrath before the day of the Lord, to turn back the hearts of fathers toward their sons, and to reestablish the tribes of Jacob. Blessed is he who shall have seen you and who falls asleep in your friendship. Okay, let's uh, meditate on each passage. All right, so we'll give time. And then we'll go to the Psalms. All right. In those days, like a fire, there appeared the prophet Elijah, whose words 
were a flaming furnace. That's a very powerful uh, description of him. He left quite an impression. I read a novel um, where people were praying to idols. It was about the days of Elijah with Jezebel and King Ahab. And when people were praying to their idols, Israel went into a complete apostasy. And Elijah would come out of nowhere and just shatter the idols. They broke their covenant. Israel has been known in its uh, annals of history to constantly go into apostasy. It was very difficult for them to grasp Yahweh, uh, the God of Israel. It was very difficult for them, and we've seen that even in the days of Moses, Aaron, the high priest, their pope in their day, helped build the golden calf. So apostasy has often been said, and I've been told this, it never stops from the bottom. It starts, it starts from the top. I know it's difficult, and many people who are Protestant have a hard time understanding Catholics, but let's really look at it. It's usually the top that loses faith. They automatically have a difficulty grasping either because of intellect or because of pride or because they just don't understand God. You know, I've been hearing lately like how these judges in the Supreme Court don't really want to interpret the Constitution within a borderline, a boundary. In other words, it's a straight and narrow way, right? And here, we, Elijah was, he came as a fire, a fire from heaven to try to get the people back into straight and narrow way to worshiping Yahweh, to worshiping the Lord God. And here he came as a fiery furnace. Faith has to be constantly like kindled with fire. You have to do it through prayer, through reading of the scriptures, through devotions, constantly always putting the coal in. And the coal is, is prayer to keep that furnace burning within our hearts. Prayer, the Holy Spirit is often described as fire, tongues of fire, fire from heaven, a cloud, a wind, any, and, you know, lightning, and often water. You have to constantly re-energize yourself and you energize yourself with prayer, reading of the scriptures. Next line. Their staff of bread he shattered. In his zeal, he reduced them to straits. By the Lord's word, he shut up the heavens. There was at least um, um, a famine, a famine in the land during his days. There was no rain. And so people, people uh, were worshiping uh, the harvest gods, the gods of fertility, and they were also sacrificing their babies. Uh, Jezebel, who was a Phoenician and a priestess, she brought with her her priests and everything. King Ahab married a pagan. And she, just like Solomon did in his day, married a lot of pagan women. King Ahab married a pagan wife. And she brought with her her 
priest of Baal. And remember, Elijah had that challenge on the on the hilltop. On an altar, he challenged the priest of Baal. And many of the people of Israel fell into this apostasy. Three times he brought down fire. How awesome are you, Elijah, in your wondrous deeds, whose glory, whose glory is equal to yours. You were taken aloft in a whirlwind of fire, in a chariot with the fiery horses. Elijah was quite a revolutionary. I mean, he was fire from heaven himself, literally. A fiery prophet and brought down fire from heaven. Um, there's, you know, you can see that in his... Um, Ministry, and he was taken to heaven in a fire in a uh, on a fiery whirlwind with uh, horses, chariot of horses, kind of like you can say almost God was like mocking the uh, the pagans because in there you know you Zeus or Apollo rides a chariot across the heavens, and then God is showing, well, I can do I can do that real real truly with my prophets, and you know that's how I often think of it, but that's. When you think about it, that's what happened. You were destined, it is written, to in time to come, to put an end to the wrath before the day, the day of the Lord. Uh, it's believed that Elijah, uh, something Elijah and Enoch, both Elijah and Enoch were both assumed into heaven. The assumption of Elijah and Enoch is believed. Uh, Enoch, who walked with God and was no longer found. And then you have Elijah, who also was assumed into heaven. Some think that two of them will return during the last days before the coming of the Christ, the second coming of Jesus, and will bear witness to the world. Others think, imagine it to be for some reason, either St. Peter and St. Paul, who were two witnesses who died in Rome. Uh, others think it would be just like John the Baptist, uh, two, two more holy figures will appear in time to bear witness to the, to, to God's truth in, um, Jerusalem or in Rome or something. It's, that's an interesting, um, interesting, uh, prophecy because you see that in the book of Revelation and then they're martyred. They're, they're, they're martyred, but we'll see. <laughs> That's something uh, we'll have to look into in the future. Uh, turn back, to, to turn back their hearts. Okay, you were destined, it is written in time to come, to put an end with, to wrath before the, before the day of the Lord, to turn back to the hearts of the fathers toward their sons, and to reestablish the tribes of Jacob. Blessed is he who, will, who, will have, um, who shall have seen you, and who falls asleep in your friendship. Indeed, it would be very uh, fantastic to see prophets from ancient of days making their appearance in, in our modern times during the end times. It's a lot of ways. I mean, there's a lot of like uh, interesting things that we can look to private revelation and also through the history of the church. Fathers get commentary. All right, now let's meditate on Psalm 80. Uh, the response is, Lord, make us turn to you. Let us see your face and we shall be saved. 
Uh, o shepherd of Israel, hearken from your throne upon the cherubim, shine forth, rouse your power. Lord, make us turn to you, let us see your face, and we shall be, we shall be saved. Once again, O Lord of hosts, look down from heaven and see, uh, and see, take care of this, of this wine and protect what your right hand has planted, the son of man whom you yourself made strong. Lord, make us turn to you and let us see your face and we shall be saved. May your help be with the man of your right hand, with the son of man whom you yourself made strong. Then we will no, no more withdraw from you. Give us new life and we will call upon your name. Lord, make us turn to you. Let us see your face and we shall be saved. Shepherd of Israel, hearken from your throne upon the cherubim, shine forth, rouse your power. That's that's very beautiful uh, imagery. Once again, O Lord of hosts, look down from heaven and see, take care of this vine and protect what your right hand has planted. The son of man whom you yourself made strong, protect what your right hand has planted. Son of man whom you yourself made strong. That's a messianic prophecy right there. And we've heard the term Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the, you are the branches. Okay? Protect what your right hand is. How often Jesus had used a vineyard? How many times have he used that? A vineyard. Remember the, or even some, a fig tree. And if it doesn't bear fruit, remember the parable, uh, the servant would say, let me take care of it for for next year uh, you know until next year I'll fertilize it and you can come back if it doesn't bear fruit then we'll chop it down you know and how often Jesus had used terminology every good tree or analogy every good tree bears good fruit a, a bad you know a bad tree cannot bear good fruit a good tree cannot bear bad fruit all that is all all, all here right here in this in this psalm um the son of, okay, the protect what your right hand has planted and the son of man whom you yourself made strong. May your help be with the man of, uh, of your right hand and with the son, the son of man whom you have, who you yourself had made strong. Then we will no more withdraw from you. Give us new life. And now we will call upon you, call upon your name forever. That's pretty um, beautiful imagery right there. All right, the Alleluia Antiphon first. I'm going to read it three times. We're going to try to meditate on it. It's from Luke chapter 3, verse 4 and 6. Alleluia, Alleluia, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Alleluia, Alleluia. One more time. Alleluia, Alleluia, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. One more time. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his path. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. This uh, passage is a, uh, is a callback to Isaiah. That all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare our hearts, our minds our souls, the very depth of our being 
for the way of the Lord. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, doesn't necessarily mean that all are going to be saved. I, I don't believe that's what it says there, but because a lot of people will choose to reject God. We know that. And people have done that in their lives. They choose to reject God, to close the door to salvation and close their hearts, close their minds, close the very depth of their being, turn a deaf ear to God. And they, some of them may do it out of ignorance. Some of them may do it, most will do it out of pride. Remember what Jesus said. All, um, the road to heaven is straight and narrow and very few will make it. But the road to hell is wide open and many will make it there. All right, so now the gospel um the gospel reading from Matthew chapter Gospel of Matthew chapter 17 verse 9 10 and 13 Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him a reading from the holy gospel according to math saint matthew glory to you o lord as they were coming down from the mountain the disciples asked jesus why do the scribes say that elijah must come first he said in reply, Elijah will indeed come and restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also will the Son of Man suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. One more time. As they were coming down from the mountain, the disciples asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He said in reply, Elijah will indeed come and restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also will the Son of Man suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Okay, one more time. As they were coming down from the mountain, the disciples asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He said in reply, Elijah will indeed come and restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they please. So will the Son of Man suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so let's review what we read here. I, the reason why I read it three times, just to let you know, um... I've been told that I need to focus on the text a little longer. And so I'm using a little something from Lessio Divina. Sorry about that. I really got to turn off those notifications. <laughs> um, Lessio Divina. It's prayerful reading or basically Lessio reading, Divina, divine, divine reading, but it's also called prayerful reading. So you kind of like read and let certain linger on certain lines, certain words.
So as they were coming down from the mountain, the disciples asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Let's go back and stop at mountain as they were coming down from the mountain. Why were they up the mountain? Well, this incident is followed by the incident uh, that is, it comes right after the incident of the transfiguration. When Jesus went up the mountain, he took Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Peter, Simon Peter, and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John being the youngest. And they went up there to pray. And while they were praying, Jesus transfigured. His face became bright like the sun. And his clothes became dazzling white, more white than any bleacher can make. Now, along appeared Moses and Elijah. Interesting that they recognized it was Moses and Elijah. It seemed like the divine power of God uh, brings out some kind of spiritual instinct that you can recognize these these holy people who've been gone, who've been passed away for centuries, left that world for centuries, and they meet Jesus on the mountain. Moses spent a lot of time on the mountain, if we remember from the book of Exodus, getting the Ten Commandments and getting the other laws from God and talking to God on the mountain. And um, Elijah uh, spent a lot of time battling the priests of Baal and also talking to God on the mountain. Now, interesting, there's something else that follows, uh, which doesn't tell you in the scene, but if you go back and read that incident, Peter says something. Lord, it is good that we are here. Let us build three shelters or three booths. And some translations say three tabernacles. Uh, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Interesting uh, that Peter would say that. That tells us it happened during Sakut, the Feast of Shelters, or the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. It depends which, you know, you know what translation you prefer or most translators would use. This was to call back their wandering in the desert and how God covered the Israelites, sheltered the Israelites, uh, you know, overshadowed them with a cloud to from them to being, uh, I guess you can say, sunstroke. And then, um, of course, they were wandering to 40 years in the desert because they pretty much got the divine, got God angry with all their sins after the building the golden calf and other, other offenses that they've committed, complaining a lot and everything. And then um, after the 40 years wandering, during the 40 years, the elder generation passed away. And then the new generation entered the Holy Land. And then, of course, um, the cloud, uh, they were told once they're about to enter the land that in order to commemorate and to teach their children, they are to build booths, shelters. And they're not to be perfect, but because it's supposed to remind them when they wandered in the wilderness. You know, they would eat in it, pray in it, sleep in it, maybe. Kind of like almost like going out camping, I guess you can say. You know, that was the reason why they built these booths. So it happened, this this incident is just right at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And they're coming down the mountain. Um, well, Moses is the one who actually started the portable tabernacle. Remember the portable temple? They would fold up 
and they would move on and it would take the temple, their, their house of worship with them. So that's another interesting thing. Now they're coming down the mountain and then they, they want, they, Jesus told them not to tell anybody about what they've seen till after the resurrection. And they want to know, well, how come everybody keeps saying that Elijah must come first? And Jesus reminds them, Elijah, um, Elijah will indeed come and restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. They did not recognize the spirit and manner of Elijah in John the Baptist. And because later on, they say, the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. But notice they overlooked something. So will the Son of Man suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. They did not, they, they, that went over their head. You notice how these things always go over their head. Except maybe for once that Peter was worried about this death and rising again, and he tried to stop him, becoming a stumbling block to Jesus. But this is something that's a problem. We often are not paying attention to certain spiritual things, maybe because we're scared, like we're scared of persecution. We're scared of, of um, like what's happening now with all this cancel culture, right? People trying to shame you because of what you believe, your political your political leanings, you, uh, if you're conservative or you hold on to conservative views about marriage, conservative views about children, conservative views about religion, uh, conservative views about law and order. And because we're afraid of being persecuted. We're afraid of being persecuted. We're afraid of people embarrassing us we're afraid of losing our job which is all understandable all that is legit but if you cave in what happens when we commit sin what happens when we're pressured to commit sin the early christians caved in and they wound up burning incense to caesar wound up denouncing their faith is this what we want to do? And how are we, I mean, you know, what if it costs us our, our salvation? Um, St. Thomas More, one of my favorite heroes, when he was being pressured by his family to, to agree to acknowledge the king, to acknowledge his, his, his false marriage to Anne Boleyn and to acknowledge him as the head of the Church of England to technically denounce the Pope, denounce the Catholic Church, and to take the oath. And to take an oath, he said, it's like putting, it's like holding water in your hands. You know how your, your water slips away? He says, it's like putting my, my soul there and my soul is going to slip away through my fingers. Water, you can't hold the water in your hand. It keeps slipping right through, seeping right through you can't hold it and that's what he feels that's what he's going to do to himself now if we all hold to what we believe and say no say no to these people okay i'm not going to step aside i'm not going to 
denounce what I believe. I'm not going to be shamed. Because that's how evil wins. They're trying to shame us. They, they've taken everything and they inverted it. They made evil good and they turned good into evil. It's interesting that the scripture says that. That's exactly what happened in those days among them. Nothing is new under the sun. Nothing is new under heaven. There was probably a cancel culture back then. Everybody was made to feel ashamed during Henry VIII's day about about um, uh, you know the Catholic Church. You know, being being associated with the Catholic Church, everybody was made ashamed that you do not support the king's church, you do not stand with the with the national church. So everybody was made to feel ashamed. And the apostles, when they noticed, when they denounced Jesus and they ran away, notice what happened to Simon Peter when he was out in the courtyard, in the high priest's courtyard. Aren't you one of his disciples? Cancel culture, shaming. Peter felt ashamed and he denounced him three times. Are we going to do that? If we stick to what we believe, and hold on to what we believe. All right? God will give us far more greater graces. Greater graces. We have to pray. Okay? We shouldn't go into it headlong. Most likely, one of the things that Peter didn't do was he didn't have a strong prayer life. I don't uh, Before that night, maybe he didn't pray enough. Jesus did say to him, Simon, you will deny me three times. You deny you ever knew me three times. And remember what happened. He said to him, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that you will be strengthened and in return, strengthen your brothers. Prayer, 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 prayer. Pray your rosary. Use that time during the rosary to converse with God. Each decade, have a conversation with God. Have a moment to converse with God. Use that mystery and then talk about what's concerning you. Talk about what you want, what kind of strength you want. It, it's not going to work if we don't pray and we don't talk to God about the fears. Noisy Brooklyn. Noise, uh, Fears. We need to talk to God about our concerns. Pray, talk to him about your family. Talk about relatives that you wish would wake up, have their eyes opened. We can't open their eyes. Only God can open their eyes. Only God can open their eyes. About what's going to happen to our country. What's going to happen with, with you, know, you know, if these people take power. They're going to come after the church. They're going to come after Jews. They're going to come after Christians. Um, I mean, the Muslims, I hate to say this, many of them are leaning towards the Democratic Party. I don't know why, because they, you know, they they, they should not, mainly, I, I know why, because the Democrats are anti-Israel. All right, so it's not a moral thing. It's a national thing. It's a personal vendetta. And that's wrong. But we need to hold on to our faith and we need to keep growing in our faith. 
we need to read the scriptures. You can also talk to God after each incident. Lord, this passage is really, it stands out to me. You know, certain things, talk about what frightens you. Talk about the fact that maybe you don't have the strength. You need the grace to grow more in, in virtue and in zeal for the faith. Things like that. We have to have a conversation with God about. All right, I'm going to stop here and then I'm going to read a little bit from the day, from the, the day Christ was born. All right, <clears throat> this is from Jim Bishop's book, The Day Christ Was Born. Um, I read to you already from uh, the day Christ was died when he focused on the nativity. I'll read uh, the introduction uh, and then the uh, uh, the prologue, and then I'll read, you, re, re, I'll read some of the chapter one. So let's look at it here. Let's read the introduction here. Perhaps it was inevitable that Jim Bishop should have followed up his extraordinarily successful the day Christ died, with a companion volume on the Nativity, and happily so. Like his documentary on Good Friday, this book is reverential, reverential, sorry, reconstruction of the people, places, institutions, events associated with the first Christmas. Unlike his previous work, The Day Christ Was Born, uh, could not possibly run to 300 pages. The New Testament gives us much less information on events surrounding the birth of Jesus, and two of the four Gospels are virtually silent on the Nativity. The author also had, uh, also had far fewer correlations to pursue between the biblical accounts and the evidence, uh, evidence from history. Archaeology and other ancient sources that he tapped so admirably in the day Christ died. This, of course, is, as we would expect, uh, greatness and its consequent uh, report is never achieved at the beginning of any life. On February 12, 1809, for example, no newspaper in America carried any banner headline, Lincoln just born. Attention focuses not on the start, but on the culmination of a great life. And Jesus is no exception. Only Joseph, and even more so, Mary of Naz Nazareth, could have known the entire nativ nativity story. The extraordinary mother of Jesus had several crucial roles to play in the Christmas story. And her very first was that of prophetess. Her prediction at the Annunciation, henceforth all generations will call me blessed, turn out to be one of the most precisely fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. Her final role, however, was, was that of historian. The same Mary who later kept all these things, pondering them in her heart, was only accredited journalist at the Nativity, but her sense of history showed itself when years later she would tell her great story to Luke, the evangelist. Luke and the disciple Matthew, in turn, would write it all down, yet not really all, only the high points. What Jim Bishop has done is to try to supply the missing details, to weave in the connective material from the threads, not spun out of air, but from known fabrics of the past. The new 
Testament, for example, tells us hardly anything about the engagement and marriage customs in first century Palestine, but these are known from other ancient sources. So the author furnishes us the relevant detail in this book, infusing the accounts with life. Purists may object that the stated ages of Mary and Joseph in these pages are only conjecture, or the Roman law would not necessarily require Mary to accompany Joseph to Bethlehem for the census, but that she made the trip also for other reasons that might quibble, uh, they might quibble that Bishop introduces three wise men in this book with the traditional names Gaspar, Melchior, and Balthazar when neither number nor names nor even a nationality of the Magi are known. But would readers prefer an indefinite number of nameless wise men arrive from the East? Hardly. Whenever the author ventures such reconstructed materials, he shows the same restraint he used so notably in the day Christ died. He never tempers with the facts. He merely sets them off in in, uh, enhancing them in recreated contexts. Aside from his fine eyes for detail and artistic restoration, Mr. Bishop's greatest credit in, his, in this slender volume is investigative insight. As in his passion narrative, he probes into some areas overlooked even by biblical scholars. For that reason, I would readily confess that this book was very helpful to me as I wrote my own documentary on the Nativity first Christmas, a specialist getting help from a journalist. This also explains why the publisher did not scruple to have one Christmas author pen the introduction for another, lines cheerfully, lines cheerfully even enthusiastically done. Paul L. Mayer, uh, Meyer, Western Michigan University, April 1977. Now we'll go into uh, the opening uh, from, uh, from Jim Bishop, the record, for the record. Nothing is known of the birth of Christ beyond the New Testament. It is great and joyful story, the happiest event since the dawn of history. It needs no gilding. Still, there is natural curiosity in the heart of the journalist to know more. He would like to fill in the blank spaces of any great event. This one happened 2,000 years ago. The town and the terrain of Bethlehem have not changed. The road down the Jordan Valley from Nazareth is a little smoother now, but it twists beside the same bank of the same river. The walls of Jerusalem have been moved in a little, especially on the south side, but the view of the Mount of Olives is the same, and Gethsemane still reposes at the base of the mountain. The marriage customs of the Jews of 2,000 years ago are recorded. The manner of courtship to which Joseph and Mary surely describe is also known. The cave where the animals were sheltered beneath the inn at Bethlehem is still there. The facts about the Magi as a class of philosophers, astrologers, are available to those who seek them. In addition, there are ageless works the, there are ageless works written by scholars about the birth of Jesus. I have availed myself of these things. The result is within these pages. Although the facts are as I present them, the book must be called a, rec a recreation because it contains dialogue 
and minor scenes which are not to be found within the historical framework of the New Testament. These are my imaginings. Jim Bishop, Seabright, New Jersey. Now we'll go into uh, the first um, chapter here. I'll read uh, up to a portion and we'll stop. The road out of Bethany through a tawny through a tawny griddle around the hill they called the Mount of Olives. And the little parties came up slowly out of the east, leading asses with dainty dark feet toward the splendor of Jerusalem. They came up all year long from Jericho and the Salt Sea and the mountains of Moab and the north country of Samaria and Galilee in a never-ending procession to the temple of Herod the Great. It was a spiritual spawning, a coming home, a communion with God at his appointed house. Joseph had never seen such awesome beauty. The elders in Nazareth had described it as a rare white jewel set in the green valley between Kidron and Golgotha, and he had asked questions about it, but the, uh, but the elders, and his father too, seemed to lose themselves in arm-waving and superlatives. Now he would see it. He reached the rise of the road, his feet tired and dirty from 90 miles of walking, and he unconsciously pulled the, the jackass a little faster. Are you quiet, he said, his bride called Medium in the Aramean tongue, and Mary, in others, jogged sideways on the little animal and said that she was quiet. She felt no pain. There was the fifth day. This was the fifth day from Nazareth, and from hour to hour she had progressed from tiredness to fatigue, to weariness, to the, to, to the deep anesthesia uh, uh, of exhaustion. She felt nothing. She no longer noticed the chafe of the goatskin against her leg, nor the sway of the food bag on the other side of the animal. Her veiled head hung, and she saw millions of pebbles on the road moving by her brown eyes in a blur, pausing and moving by again with each step of the animal. Sometimes she felt Ill, Ill at ease and fatigued, but she swallowed this feeling and concentrated on what a beautiful baby she was about to have, and kept, and kept thinking about it. The bathing, the oils, the feeding, the tender pressing of the tiny body against her breast, and the sickness went away. Sometimes she mummered the ancient prayers, and for the moment there was no road, no pebbles, and she dwelt on the wonder of God and saw him in a fleecy cloud at a one windowless wall of, of an inn, or a hammock of trees, walking backward in front of her husband, beckoning him on. God was everywhere. It gave Mary confidence to know that he was everywhere. She needed confidence. Mary was 15. Most young ladies of the country were betrothed at 13 and married at 14. A few were not joined in holiness until 15 or 16, and these seldom found a choice man and were content to be shepherds, wives living in caves in the sides of the hills, raising their children in loneliness, knowing only the great stars of the night lifting over the hills and the whistle of the shepherd 
as he turned to lead his flock to a new pasture. Mary had married a carpenter. He had been apprenticed by his father at, at Bar Mitzvah. Now he was 19 and had his own business. It wasn't much of a business, even for the Galilean country. He was young, and even though he was earnest to the point of being uh, humorless, he was untried and was prone to mistakes in his calculations. In all of Judea, there was little lumber. Some stately cedars grew in the powdery alkaline soil, but other than date palms and fig trees and some fruit orchards, it was a bold, hilly country. Carpentry was a poor choice. A rich priest might afford a house of wood, but most of the people used the substance only to decorate the interior. The houses were, were of stone, cut from big, uh, depo- big deposits, uh, 18 inches under the topsoil. It was soft when first exposed to the air and could be cut with wooden saws into cubes. These were staggered in course to make a wall. Windows were small and placed high on each wall so that daily squares of sunlight walked slowly across the earthen floor. Mary's house, like the average, was small and set against a hill in a Nazareth. At the front, there was a stone door sill. Over, over it hung clothes, drapes. To enter, and the drape was pushed, back, was pushed aside. The interior consisted of two rooms. The front one was Joseph's shop. In it were the workbench and the saws, the auger, the awl, and the hammers. There were clean, smelling boards and blonde curls of shavings on the floor. In the back room, there was an earthen oven to the left, three feet wide, six feet long, and two feet high. The cooking was done in the stone-lined interior. The family slept on the earthen, uh, on the earthen top of the oven. On chilly nights, the heat seeped through the warm uh, sleepers. To the right of the room was a, sta- uh, was a table. There were no chairs because only rich Jews sat to eat, and they had leaned. They had learned this from the traveling Greeks. Next to the table was a wooden tether for the ass. He was he was a member of the family, a most important member because he did the carrying of the raw lumber. And the, and the finished products, and he was also the sole means of transportation. He was petted and loved and spoken to. On the tether, he watched Mary go about her duties. He flicked the flies from his ears, and sometimes when, when, he tried, when he got tired of watching, his eyes closed and he locked his knees so that he would not fall. He slept standing up. He was not a stubborn animal. He was was most patient, and he would stand while Joseph burdened him with mounds of objects. When the bridle strap was pulled by the when the bridle strap was pulled by his master, the ass lowered his head and switched his tail against the flanks, and he started off. The little hooves making sounds like an inverted cup dropped in the mud. This was the winter solstice of the Jewish year. 3790, the gaiety of the Feast of of Hanukkah had ended as Joseph and his wife left Nazareth. They had come down through Naim 
and down into the valley of the Jordan. It was hot along the valley floor, but the Jews of the upland country seldom risked travel by direct route through Samaria and Sakar, where the people at the village wells were unfriendly and argumentative. Each night when the sun was gone and the road obscured, Joseph led the ass a little away off from the river, away from the road into a clearing where there was very little brush and few insects. Then he tried, then he tied the ass, tilted the goatskin, and filled the earthen jar with water from it, and sat. There was not much talk about. There was not much to talk about. Their minds were troubled with momentous events far beyond the scope of their thoughts, far beyond the re- re- uh, rationalization of two simple peasants of the family of David. On a few occasions when they discussed it, both Mary and Joseph became overwhelmed and shy. They lapsed into silence, and Joseph would mend the conversational rip with questions about Mary's family. Mary was big with the baby and and awkward, but she managed to fetch the food and bread from the pouch on the near side of the donkey, on the rear uh, near side of the donkey, and to set it down as nearly as appetizingly as possible. There was no meat. Even at home, they never had meat more than once a month. Mostly it was lamb, chopped into cubes and roasted, and then set on a plate beside the, the chorus and other herbs and fruits. They slept in the open, saving what little money they had for the day, for the day of the baby. Sometimes when there was no moon, Joseph set, set the lamp on the ground, and Mary removed her veil and brushed, the long, dark, brushed her long, dark hair, which hung to her waist. She said that she would like to bathe in the Jordan, and he said wistfully, and he and she said it wistfully. Sorry, she said it wistfully, because she knew that Joseph would say no, and a good wife did not dispute the wills of her husband. On these occasions, he said no. He said it gently, reminding her that her time was near, and that this would be her firstborn, and he would not assume the risk of the river. To this, Mary made no reply. Joseph touched with tenderness and said gruffly that the best he could do was to take some clothes to the Jordan, wet them, and wring them out and bring them to her. Mary said she would appreciate it. In the morning, with the sun still behind the mountains of Moab, Joseph arose, adjusted his tonic, and fed the animal. He worked quietly, whispering to the jackass, setting the folded blanket behind the the withers and adjusting and balancing the goatskin and the food bag. Before awakening his wife, he felt an enormous compassion for this girl, but he could never explain it, not even to himself. He had once felt this way toward a little little boy who had a withered foot. The road was busy at dawn. Sometimes Joseph had to wait until he could find room between parties going south. The road, it seemed, was always alive. The rich Greeks traveled south out of Sephoris in Sedan in Sedan, in, in Sedan chairs and the servants sheltering the yokes easily and walking safely on en route to Jerusalem to trade with the rich Jews. The northbound traffic came from Jerusalem and also from as far away as Egypt. And these merchants were laden with fabrics and metal objects and expensive spices. They left their elegant good uh, good wishes on the air behind them. 
On the evening of the fourth day, they were at Jericho, a few miles above the Salt Sea, and within glance up Mount Nebo to the east. Joseph wanted to stay at an inn where they could pay for, for space on the floor, but Mary begged him not to do it. This is not an important day, she said. He knew what she meant. One does not see a great place like Jericho often, he said softly. It will be just as well for if, if we eat at an inn and, as you say, sleep in the fields. He looked away. I was thinking of you. They ate at an inn on the far side of town near, uh, near where the wilderness began. But it was an ordinary place catering to transits. It was a stone place and one had to eat whatever the house offered. For the food came in gleaming bowls, and Mary admitted to herself that it was better than anything she had had to offer. Uh, she had to offer, so conversely she shifted. So confer, con conversationally she shifted, the attack. There are many people in these places, she said. Joseph shrugged. A public house, he said. He was a medium-sized man with deep brown curls hanging to his shoulders. The air was thick, and the hair the hair was thick and parted in the middle. His beard was thin and scraggly, but he wiped it with his hands as though it was it were full. This, Mary understood, was natural in young in a young man. She ate, leaning against the wall. She said it made her back feel good. He stood flanking her as a, as a wall of protection against the crush of people entering and leaving the place babbling as though this were the last chance to inflict their opinions on others. It is better together, she said shyly. When, when we must eat in the fields, she said, we will eat in the fields. This eating is rare. Mary ate well, uh, stealing fruitful glances at Joseph and wondering what she, what she did to deserve all the tumult of happiness she felt when he was near. It was like a tame storm in, his, in her heart a relaxation of caution, accompanied by the excitement of knowing that she belonged to this growing boy. She had never been anywhere except to visit old relatives, and now, in advanced pregnancy, she was seeing much and she was seeing much and knowing much in a few days. In the morning Joseph led Mary and the ass into the wilderness. It was twenty miles to Bethany, and from there three to the heart of Jerusalem. A man with strong legs could walk, could walk it, leading an animal and a woman, uh, and a woman before sundown. The wilderness is barren place in the, in the mountains where nothing of consequence grows and the tiny peaks look, look alike, orchard and white and chalky, a place where bandits await in the, or, uh, in the ornate sedine chairs and the sun smites the walker until the, the sweat itches his legs and all and, and softens the straps of his sandals. All right, I'll stop here. That was a lot. <laughs> when nothing of constant grows and the tiny peaks look alike, orchard and white chalky, a place where bandits wait, await in the ordinate sardine chairs and the sun smi smites the walker until the sweat itches his legs and softens the strap of his sandals. Interesting. I'll stop here for a minute. All right, so I'll um, I'm going to review exactly what I think. I'm not going to go into the the two forwards or the um, for the record that he uh, that Jim Bishop wrote. My own personal 
uh, take on this. I just don't believe people, a man would have traveled alone with his wife all the way from Nazareth. Uh, I just don't think they would have traveled alone. I just don't think they would have left Nazareth without family members. I mean, he expresses in the book, they, they lived in clans. They had clans, family, tribes. And that's true. My own Palestinian family has a tribe or a clan or a household. I don't believe a man would have traveled alone with a pregnant wife um, all the way from Nazareth. That image of a man with his betrothed, his pregnant wife on the donkey, I just don't think it was possible. I, I, people do not travel alone. I mean, if you looked at, um, if you've seen the film Jesus of Nazareth, uh, they did travel in caravans. There had to have been more people with them. Uh, if not family members, I do believe he would. they would have had some family members with them. I know the Gospel Luke doesn't mention it. And purists, you know, like you get people who are like from, you know, who, I mean, I take the Bible literally as the word of God, but I do believe it gives us room to ask questions. I don't necessarily believe that Joseph would not have had any other family member, cousin, or fa- or, or um, uh, you know, family members from Mary's side not traveling with them all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They couldn't have been the only uh, two people. I mean, that's true. We're 2,000 years remote. But just because the Gospels don't mention it doesn't mean there weren't other people there. All right? If, if you're going to get a whole population of people moving and going back to to their homes uh, because it's it's part of the idea, you know, you don't just count a person, you're counting, you know, their their sacred origin, where they come from, their their lineage. And there were so many other people from who are uh, from Bethlehem and went back, you know, of uh, David, you know, you would have had other family members. I mean, I don't know, uh, Anne Rice wrote Christ the Lord. She was trying to write a series on on Jesus, she supposedly Catholic, and she came back, and then she abandoned the Catholic faith because her son is gay, and because the, the Catholic Church uh, refuses to change its views on homosexuality. I think it's because she really does. Uh, I think it's, religion is very much more difficult. And I mean, I'm I'm not going to say I know her heart or know her mind, but she struggled with something about the. Uh, I think it's more than just her son being gay. That's personally my view. I think it's something else. I think because religion is a very big different thing. It's, 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 it's something more than just uh, a belief system, just a belief system. It's, it's a conversion. You got to go through a real serious conversion. Anyway, she struggled with it. And she, even in her book, at least she did use, she did include family members, cousins with them. I think Jim Bishop could have done that. I just, I don't know. I mean, look, he did so much more harder work in his, the day Christ died. He, you know, he added more. I think, I think he would have added family members. 
okay, family members. I I just don't believe Joseph and Mary, and I don't believe they went to, to, to Egypt alone. I don't believe that either. All right? I, I do believe they must have traveled with family members. It's very dangerous. I mean, a man, yeah, I know God protected them. We could say that, but I also believe you don't tempt the Lord your God. I do believe that it's dangerous. A man, a man with a wife could get easily attacked. And the wife, you know, you know, you don't even want to go there, but you know, they could be sold into slavery. I mean, human trafficking was the norm back then. I just don't believe it was possible. I just, you know, you know, uh, you know I think it's 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 too uh, fairy tale. You know, just because we paint pictures of it doesn't mean it's true. I believe they did go to Bethlehem. I did believe they traveled from Nazareth, but I believe they traveled with family, caravan of family. Just as Luke himself pointed that out when they went for the Passover. Right, they went with the Passover, and then they discovered that Jesus wasn't with them. That that they 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 inquired among other family members. They ran back to Jerusalem to look for him. So that's a fact. We know, we know that's true. Um, I mean, I, I'm still going to read it. I think he, you know, I think it's worth reading. Uh, I personally think his work in the day Christ died was better. So far from the start of it, I think this is a little bit weaker. Um, maybe he waited too long. I don't know. But um, I think we, uh, you know, I mean, you know, I'm going to read it. I like Jim Bishop. I think he, he, you know, he did good work. I think his, even his work with The Day Lincoln Died was uh, was something I remember reading. I enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, it's some, you know, it's something, you know, to think about. But the you know there's there are arguments among people because they they found out that i mean there's some scholars they argue that there was no census there was no census because um the um they they can't find it on the roman records that augustus caesar uh required a census and then they don't believe that there was anything that would have required people to travel from one place to another or uh, or that the fact that one would have to travel with his wife and kid. I think scholars, just because they say that, there was a time when they did, they some people doubted that Pontius Pilate existed and they found a stone with Pilate's name on it. So scholars, I think, can be wrong about a lot of things just because, um, and some think that Luke, got his dating wrong or something there there's a lot of them that say that well not necessarily i think i think there's a i think there's always a, a proof that uh, luke got it right i can't believe that uh, i think secular scholarship got their dates wrong that's that's my opinion and i believe it's true uh but i you know i'm not going to argue with them i mean i'm going to i'll hear what they say but there's always something discovered. And I think one day we might be surprised in archaeology. <laughs> I really do. It's always it's always a surprise. Some you know, God you know, using Pope Francis's um phrase, he's the God of surprises, right? All right, so I'm gonna end it here. Uh let's say a, a prayer, and then uh I'll get back with you another time. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now and forever. All right, folks. Um, please remember me in your prayers. Um, thank you. And um, I'll get back to you again soon for the Sunday readings. God bless.